the resurrection and ascension of our Lord Jesus, followed by the gift of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, are central events and celebrations of our Christian faith. And over the last seven weeks, we've listened and celebrated. And on this program, we've also dealt with some of the issues that uh, arise because of these issues, particularly in the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians. And during these weeks, we've received some emails. So some of you have some questions, concerns about all the different issues that arise in this chapter. And so today on Deep in Scripture, we want to answer your questions. And so please join us today for this discussion on Deep in Scripture. So thank you for, again for joining us on Deep in Scripture. I hope you've enjoyed this program over the last couple of weeks. We've gotten some nice emails. I thank you for those. And uh, I'm your host, Marcus Grodi, joined by co-host Dr. Kenneth Howell. And you can hear not only this program, but all the archive programs, well, essentially from the last five or six years of Deep in Scripture on www.deepinscripture.com. And we'd love to hear emails from you of your questions and even ideas on what scriptures uh, you might like us to discuss. You can send us an email at dis at chnetwork.org. And we'd love for you to subscribe to our Facebook page, CH Network, or Twitter at CH Network. So, Ken, thank you for joining me again today, all the way from Illinois. Great to be with you, Marcus. We're gonna, enjoy. What we're going to do differently today is uh, uh, we've been, for the last couple of weeks, looking at 1 Corinthians, in which Paul discusses the importance of the resurrection of Jesus and how that changes our lives and, and the reality of what that means as we look to the future. And then it calls us, as he ended that chapter, on our need to remain steadfast to our faith. And we've got a number of emails, but what I'd like to do before we jump right into the emails, that I had a thought that I wanted to discuss with you, Ken, about our reflections that we had on 1 Corinthians. Because it seemed to me, as we discussed that chapter in 1 Corinthians, boy, it reminded me of, of how important we believe it is in our work to help people discover the fullness of the Catholic Church. And we do that not with any um, negative statement about other Christian traditions. We, it's more of a positive affirmation and a celebration of this wonderful church that our Lord has given us in his apostles, guided by the Holy Spirit as we celebrated at Pentecost, but also giving us a deposit of faith so that we can interpret his word correctly, which is what I hope that we are able to do on Deep in Scripture. Uh, we believe in the infallibility, the inspiration of Scripture, but we recognize that the Bible is a part of a wider deposit of faith, of tradition. And, and I believe it's essential for us to understand the study of Scripture in the midst of this deposit of faith. And, and what came to me in my mind as we were finishing up last week was how important it is to understand that our walk with Christ is a lifeline, lifetime walk, as Paul said, to be steadfast. But it involves, hopefully, by the work of the Spirit and grace, a maturing, a change in who we are and what's 
center up front in what we need to focus on. And the spiritual writers, Teresa of Avila, John of the Cross, and others, um, have described this lifeline walk in terms of three ways of the spiritual life, um, different ways they've looked at that. But what it does, it recognizes that not only in our walk with Jesus Christ should we be going through different stages of maturity, but when we, when we express the gospel as Paul was doing at 1 Corinthians 15, it's important to know who we're talking to, at what stage they might be at, to, to understand how we communicate the gospel. And it seems to me, rather than uh, identifying in a, the complicated way that it may seem, as Teresa of Avila and John of the Cross describe the three ways of the spiritual life, or great writers like Garigou Lagrange or Father Thomas Dubay, that the simple way of understanding the stages that we go through are three stages. And the first is believing in Jesus, the second is abiding in Jesus, and the third is loving in Jesus. And the first, believing in Jesus, is dealing with the very first step of just coming out of paganism into believing in the reality of Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And the way that we proclaim the gospel to those people who don't believe is different than we proclaim and share the gospel to those at other stages. In Ephesians, Paul talks in verse 13 of chapter 1, In him you also who have heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and have believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. So we enter into that first stage by believing in Christ, and then through baptism we receive the Spirit. That's just the beginning, though. That's right. And, and sadly, many Christians don't get beyond that. They see yeah. that it's all about faith alone, yeah. but that there's yeah. other stages. And, you know, after believing in him, then we're called to abide in Christ, which Paul deals with in the whole rest of Ephesians when he talks about leading a life worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Our life has to be changed. So now we're no longer really dealing with whether God exists anymore. We kind of have accepted that, but it's like, now what? And so that calls us to clean up our life, or as the spiritual yeah. writers called, purgation of the senses. We've got to right. get our act together. And then the third stage, when, we, when we've by grace, have cleaned up who we are, we've been growing into the recognition of really what this is all about, and that's loving. And, and the truth is, Ken, and I'm going to turn it over to you for your reflections on this, it seems to me that most of the New Testament documents, the authors are writing to people who already believe, and they're mostly in stage two. They're mostly in stage. Jesus, in his speaking, was mostly speaking to people that believed in God and was calling them to live holy lives. That's what the Sermon on the Mount was. Mm -hmm. And so once in a while, the Gospel of John is reaching out to people who don't believe. He's sharing this stuff that they might progress into that first stage, God so loved the world. But most of the New Testament is written to people in stage two, and then once in a while we get a glimpse of stage three, which is First John, and which John is writing to people who not only believe but have tried to live in obedience, but now they need to be challenged more and more 
unloving. What do you think of that, Ken? Well, I think it, it's interesting. I was reminded when you were talking there about uh, something I read from Jim Caviezel, and I remember that our listeners may not remember that Jim Caviezel is a uh, a very talented actor who played Jesus in the, in the Passion, and now he plays, I think, on a number of other movies. There's a movie coming out about football that he's that he's the 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 central actor in. But Jim is a very devout Catholic. And, uh, and I think he's a man who's seeking true holiness in his life and his family. Uh, one of the things that Jim recently said on a, I think it was on a Facebook message that I see, had seen, was that when you really try to stop sinning, you uh, become a courageous person. And so let's think about that for just a moment, because I think it fits into what you're saying here, that <clears throat> when you begin that process of purgation, um, when you, when you, self-consciously try to live a holy life and you're trying to deal with those problems that you have in your past, uh, what happens is there's kind of a a subtle uh, but um, mystical almost, uh, but very real transformation that takes place in your life. And that is you, you suddenly become a person that you didn't realize you could be. You become a person of courage. And that's what Jim, that's what Jim was saying. I think that's what gave yeah. Jim Caviezel um, the ability when um, playing Jesus in the, in the Passion of the Christ may have cost him his career as a actor in Hollywood. It didn't, thankfully. But the point is that it could have, and he was willing to give that up for Christ yep. because he had begun that process of purgation. Uh, well, thank God for public figures like that, you know, somebody yep. like me. Uh, I wouldn't want to be in that kind of public position, uh, <laughs> but but uh, but I can say, but I can thank God for those who are. But the point is true, no matter who we are, it's true that when we begin that process of of purgation, uh, then we become people of courage. And there's a certain kind of the next stage of illumination that takes place. Right. We begin to see the world more clearly. I may have mentioned in the past that. Uh, you know, working as 30 years in, in higher academia, one of the things I'm convinced of is that the great problem is not that people lack the intelligence to be able to understand uh, the gospel of Christ, but what they lack is the moral courage to push through the obstacles, to, um, to, uh, to embrace it. And when, because the, the gospel challenges us and uh, the Christian uh, is not saying that we're better than other people, but simply saying, come with us to to embrace Christ so that he we can let him change us over time. I think that's what you're saying, Marcus, yep. is that salvation is more than just a, a profession of Christ. It's more than just the baptism. That's the beginning. But it's this little process of, um, of growing in holiness and, so that finally we can be united with God. And it seems that that's historically, Ken, one of the dangers of, of what Luther and the other reformers inaugurated. And, um, and that is, you know, that first stage of believing in Christ. And Luther struggled with that second stage of abiding in Christ and understanding God's forgiveness and moving yes, on and change, and, and, and he, he struggled with that. So the end result, the danger was, he essentially redefined theology, he redefined stage two and three of our journeys, limiting it to stage one, that it's faith only, it's faith only in Christ. And once you've accepted Christ, you've arrived. 
because mm. you're totally depraved. And the, the, the danger of that, it has set the stage for many, many Christian traditions that become impotent to move beyond stage one into yeah, yeah. the call to holiness. And it's not that there haven't been non-Catholic Christians that have recognized the shortcomings of this. We see this in, in John Wesley, recognizing the need for holiness. Mm-hmm. But in, in my mind, that's why the, the, the beauty of the fullness of the church helps people recognize the fullness of the gospel. Well, I think that's that's absolutely right. Um, you know, when you're talking about Luther, it reminded me of a, <clears throat> of a biography of Luther that I had read by, uh, of all persons, Eric Erickson, who was a, a psychiatrist. Oh, and he did a uh, analysis of Luther's struggle in, in trying to make sense of it from a psychological uh, point of view. And one of the things that he he said in there was that <clears throat> that Luther had uh, theologized his psychological struggle. So in other words, instead of recognizing it as a psychological struggle, he had given a theology uh, that mm. sort of explained the struggle. Um, you know, it's interesting. I was just watching an interview between you and Father John McCloskey that was done a number of years ago now. But uh, in one of his statements, in answer to your question, Marcus, uh, you asked him something about why people leave the Catholic Church. They grow up in a Catholic a church or home, and why did they leave it? And one of the things that he said was that he said several very good things, but one of them was that people encounter the distance between their current moral life and where Christ would want them to be. And then what they do is they, instead of looking at the source of the problem as themselves, they blame the church. And so they say, well, it's Jesus, it's the church. And so they, they leave it. And you see that in huge ways, especially with the issue of artificial contraception, right? I mean, people that don't, that want to practice this and they realize that the church teaches against it for very good moral reasons, uh, which we as Protestants knew all the bad consequences that come from that. Uh, we see it. But sometimes people that grow up in the church don't see it. But instead of saying, well, maybe I need to change my life, they say, well, the church should change. Um, the point here being is that <clears throat> the church does challenge us because yeah. Christ challenges. Christ doesn't want us to have a comfortable life. He wants us to have a life uh, devoted to him and to holiness, and that's why life is challenging. And I think one of the reasons that it's important, again, why we're committed to helping people know the fullness of the church and her history and, and the, the, the great wealth of the deposit of this faith is that these spiritual stages that we are called to go through, which Paul talks about when we looked at the verse last week, being steadfast and holding, um, is important to understand because, sadly, Ken, some people jump the stages and think, well, the gospel is only about the third stage. It's just about love. You know, yeah, they're yeah. not emphasizing the need to surrender to Jesus Christ in stage one. They're not talking about the need to live that out in holiness in stage two. And growing into love is something that that is the complete surrender of our journey to love the way Christ loved us, as Paul calls us husbands to do, right, Ken, in Ephesians 5. Yes, exactly. You know, it, it's, it's a part of growing in grace so that we can love. But when we reduce the gospel to nothing more than love, apart from faith in Christ and growing in holiness— then love loses its meaning and gets the world we have today, in which love means whatever you want it to mean. 
Well, exactly. In other words, we, we not only lose the gospel, we, learn, we actually lose love. We lose the true meaning of love. In the search for what we call love, we lose meaning, the meaning of love. And the clear meaning of love is what Paul, of course, outlines in 1 Corinthians 13. It's yep. that, that, that kindness, that understanding, that perseverance, that believing all things, the enduring all things. And my wife and I were talking about this the other day. Um, we have been blessed by grace to be married almost 40 years now. And it's so sad to see the way in which people, the whole culture of marriage is just disintegrating around us. And by the culture of marriage, I mean the fact that people don't believe in the permanence of marriage anymore. Because sometimes in the midst of a difficult time in a marriage, that's the very thing that 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 causes you to persevere through it to make to, to and that's when marriage gets good and beautiful is precisely when you've worked through uh these problems now the point is not marriage here but the point is that true love means growth and virtue and you know it's interesting even the pagans the ancient pagans saw that aristotle saw that sarah cicero said there can't be true friendship without fidelity Right, so without without faithfulness to to one another, there can't be a true friendship between people. Well, how did they see that? They saw it because that's the nature of human beings. All right, thanks, Ken. Well, uh, thanks for that discussion. I, I, it's something that's been on my mind since last week's program, and uh, it just seems so important to me that we that's what it we're does, here for. Yeah. We, we want to do what we can by grace to draw people to believe in Christ, to surrender to Christ, to abide in Christ, and then all of that is so that we might love the way Christ loved us. That's our call, and, yeah. and that's what yeah. the whole church is about. That's why we have the sacraments. All right, Kim, we've got some emails. Why don't you grab the first one there? Well, it's interesting uh, that in, in the light of our discussion of the resurrection, Fred writes, um, I have a friend who believes in reincarnation. He says that <clears throat> resurrection is just a Christian word for reincarnation. Is this true? I always thought resurrection was different from reincarnation. Well, Fred, you're absolutely right. It is different. Um, <laughs> but what your friend uh, has done here, I'm afraid, has perhaps taken the idea that all religions are underneath. They may use different language, but underneath all religions are the same. Um, but even describing the beliefs of other people, we'd have to honestly say, no, no, it's not the same. Uh, even if we don't believe in reincarnation or resurrection, even if we're just materialist and believe that we become fertilizer, uh, still we'd have to say, no, those beliefs are different. And uh, how are they different? Well, resurrection means a reconstitution of the body uh, where God brings the bo- the human body out of the grave and uh, reunites it with the soul and that a person lives forever in this resurrected state. That's the Christian view. That's the biblical view. Reincarnation largely comes from the East. It comes from and through Hinduism and Buddhism. But what what it says is that um, that you, when you die, your inner spirit, as it were, comes back in another form, through another body, a different body. And you'll notice what's interesting about this um, is that an Eastern view. Uh, the body is seen as being inferior to the soul. Now, by the way, Christians have been influenced by this. And sometimes people read Christian books as saying, even reading Jesus' words, 
as saying that the body doesn't matter. Well, it is true that the soul is more important in the sense that if you're not aiming to eternal life, then this life has no meaning. But that doesn't mean the body's not important. And that's what the Christian doctrine of the resurrection is, is that the body is essential to being a person. And nobody, no two people have the same body. Not actually even identical twins have exactly the same body, right? All you got to do is look at them and you can tell that, yeah, there's little subtle differences between them. So resurrection and reincarnation are different. Reincarnation is a, implicitly means that there's no individual personality that's involved. You Kent, just kind of go through different bodies. Would you say, and again, this gets back to why I'm glad I'm a Catholic, uh, because back when I was a Presbyterian for all those years and, and, and a pastor for 10 and, and all that, I would have said just what you said, all right? We would have made then that distinction between resurrection and reincarnation. But I, don't, I think I've come in my Catholicism in the depth of the 2,000-year of the maturity of the Catholic faith to have a much more empathetic sympathy for our Buddhist and Hindu brothers and sisters. It doesn't mean I agree with them that they've got it right, but what my Catholic, the Catholic Church is very committed to the idea that, um, that the work of God in people's consciences, that there's, mm-hmm. that, that there's a voice there. And so even That's though our, our Buddhist and Hindu uh, brothers and sisters don't have the, the benefit of revelation, and so their interpretation of, of what happens after life isn't exactly right, yet at the core of their conscience, they too are created in the image of God, and they recognize and they're reaching out to understand life after death. They know there's more. They know That's that it. in the core of their being. Yeah, Exactly. And exactly, and this is an excellent point that you're making here. In other words, God has placed the, as the ancients call it, the semen religionis, the semen, the seed of religion is in the human soul. In other words, human beings are, are by nature religious yeah. beings. And, and so the belief that there's something beyond this life uh, it may be interpreted in a certain way in a certain culture, but the basic idea that that there's something more to this life than just you know my seventy or eighty years, whatever it may be, uh, that's right on target. They they understand that, and you see, this is what's interesting: that atheism is not natural. Materialism, I become just fertilizer. It's not really natural to believe that. Human, the, the Buddhist. The, the Hindus who believe in reincarnation, that may not be the full story, but at least it's on the right track. Yeah, we look it's at our, going in the right our Native American re- Indians. Uh, That's right. You know, in their religions, never touched by the Christian missionaries, yet when the missionaries encountered the Indians and learned their origin, they realized they believed in a resurrection, they believed in a God, they believed in the Creator, and they believed yeah, yeah. that their lives made a difference. That is that is, now. That's an excellent point because a number of very and Saint Thomas Aquinas makes this point. It's not just that they know that there's a God; they know that the way they live is important. Now, interesting. I have a friend 
He's a PhD in psychology. He's a, he's a therapist. He works with children. And I've really come to appreciate these kind of people because working with children as a psychologist is, a, is an, an amazing skill. <laughs> but he's told me that there are numerous studies that have been done of children's emerging religious beliefs. And then by four or five years old, children know two things. They say they know two things. There's somebody up there watching me. And it makes a difference how I live. They don't put exactly that words, but they know that there's somebody that's not mommy and daddy that's bigger, and they know that it makes a difference the way that they're going to behave. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Yeah. And, and this is, and by the way, this cuts across cultures. It doesn't have to be a Christian culture. They, they, this cuts across cultures that people have, this, the kids have this. Yeah, then Freud tried to explain all that away and create a whole exactly. new system that this was just the father figure. Uh, but anyway, the, exactly. the data right. shows right. otherwise. Let's take another email. This one's from Bernie. When you were discussing the resurrected body, you pointed to Paul's words in 1543 that it is raised a spiritual body. Does this mean that our bodies won't be physical after the resurrection? What does Paul mean by calling Christ the last Adam who is a life giving spirit. Um, you know, Ken, why don't I throw that back to you? Because it seems to me that what we have here, again, is back to the mystery that we talked about last week. It's a mystery, the, what the actual differences will be. But in fact, our resurrected bodies will be the same physical bodies we've always had, yet different, glorified, healed, renewed uh, in ways mm. that we will not know until we stand before him face to face, as John refers to in his letter, 1 John chapter 3. We, we will then know him as he is when we stand face to face, and we will know ourselves because we will be like him. Well, I, I, think, uh, I think you're absolutely right. The chapter 15, this is where we have to always kind of attend to the way the words are used in the context um, rather than the, the meanings that we might attribute to it. Now we know this all this same problem in our daily conversations when we misunderstand other people, we have to sort of step back and say, well, what does this person mean by this word? Uh, when Paul uses the word spiritual, he's not excluding the physical. And what he means is I think is that the material world, the physical body is filled with the spirit. And that's in the sense in which it becomes a spiritual body because Christ is a life-giving spirit and at the same time is physical. All right, we'll pick up with that after the break. Thanks, Ken. See you in a bit. Dr. Kenneth Howell has two wonderful books on the early church fathers, translations from the Greek as well as commentaries. His first book is on Ignatius of Antioch and Polycarp of Smyrna. They were two of the greatest leaders of Christianity in the first half of the second century. The second book is on the letter to the Corinthians by Clement of Rome and the Didache. These were two of the most important documents from the earliest days of the church. For Christians today, these earliest writings hearken back to a time when the unity of faith and morals was a cherished gift and goal among professing believers. No Christian can remain unchallenged and unchanged while reading and absorbing these writings. If you are interested in these books by Dr. Kenneth Howell or purchasing them, go to the store link at chnetwork.org. Thank you. 
Next time on The Journey Home, join Marcus as he welcomes former Lutheran minister and current military chaplain, Father Tyson Wood. He'll share stories of service to our country and how it led him home to the Catholic Church. That's on the next Journey Home, only on EWTN. The Journey Home is seen and heard around the world on EWTN. For dates and times in your area, log on to EWTN.com. Deep in Scripture is brought to you by the Coming Home Network International. We are a network of inquirers, converts, as well as lifelong Catholics helping one another grow closer to Jesus Christ. On our website, you'll find conversion stories, articles, and videos, as well as information about becoming a member and receiving our CH newsletter. Visit chnetwork.org or connect with us on Facebook or Twitter. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined by co-host uh, Ken Howell, and we're just answering some of your questions. Uh, Ken, why don't you... Uh, we, I kind of cut you off in the middle for the break of that last one, dealing with the issue of the physical versus the spiritual body, and I cut you off in the middle of your of your comment on that. Well, the only thing that I would add to what, what I already said was that when Paul uses the word spiritual in 1 Corinthians fifteen forty three, when he says it will be raised a spiritual body, what he means there by spiritual is not uh, contradicted, is not the, the opposite of physical. And the reason that we say that is because in um, in modern speech, we think uh, in English, we think if something is physical, then it's not spiritual. If it's spiritual, it's not physical. Especially if it's spiritual, it's, it's not physical. But Paul is not using the word. What he's saying is that the body of the resurrected body will be a body that is indwelt by the Holy Spirit so fully, so completely, that it will be like Jesus' body. I mean, that's why he then goes on to say that he calls uh, Paul Christ the last Adam, and it says that the first Adam became a living soul. He quotes from Genesis 2, 7, and then he says, but then he says Christ, the last Adam, will becoming a life-giving spirit. Well, did Jesus not have a physical body? No, remember, he, he asked and invited the disciples, come and see, I'm not a ghost. I do have a physical body. But the body was so different because it was so completely filled with the Holy Spirit. In the same way, that's what will happen to our bodies. Ken, I wonder if, uh, let me throw another verse out at you because it came to mind that there's another scripture where this idea of spirit and flesh come into play and I'm wondering uh, with your knowledge of the of the Greek whether when John was writing in chapter 6 um, in reflection on Christ's statements about his body and blood yes right. um, and you know there's six or seven eight times when he talks about the necessity of eating his body and drinking his blood um, you know, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him, you know, the issue of eternal life. And so, and the church, uh, in its catechism discussion of this very issue we've been talking about, uh, uh, connects the, not just baptism with being saved, but eating, 
partaking of the Eucharist as the means by which we share in the body and blood of Christ. But in the middle of that whole section, there's that verse which, as you know, many non-Catholics use to discount the reality of the Eucharist when in verse 63 uh, we hear um, when, when some people were offended by what Jesus said and they left because it was too hard and many of his apostles bugged off, Jesus says, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending where he was before? It is the Spirit that gives life. The flesh is of no avail. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Mm. You know, I, I think that um, <clears throat> this use of the word flesh and spirit in John six sixty three, the spirit is the what gives life. This flesh uh, is of no avail. When people apply that to the previous discourse and then so as to effectively deny that Jesus says, um, when he says, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood, uh, Jesus is not talking about any flesh. He's talking about his flesh. Now, when he uses the word in verse 63 that the flesh profits nothing, he's using the word in the same way that Paul uses the word over in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty. Remember what Paul said, that flesh and blood will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, the word flesh and blood is a translation of the Hebrew words. It's a Hebraic way of speaking. And the Hebraic way of speaking, basar v'chayam, chadam, damim, sorry, the flesh and blood, he's saying that just a human being can't inherit the kingdom of God. There has to be something more. What Jesus is saying in John 63 is that human understanding, the flesh, profits nothing. You've got to understand these words that I'm saying to you from the standpoint or through the agency of the Spirit, because it's the Spirit that gives life. The words are not understood in just a human way. They're understood through the Spirit and through the life that comes from the Spirit. And the idea of using that word spirit to mean symbolic or... Right. Unreal. Unreal. That that yeah. term is used that way nowhere in Scripture, as far as I exactly. know. Exactly. That's a modern yeah. idea a read point. back yeah. into the, the words of the New Testament. Because we tend to think of the physical as being real and the spiritual as being secondary and maybe a little bit unreal. But that's not the way the New Testament uses the words. All right. Thank you, Ken. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, I got another email from Denise. Um, Why was it important in the early days after Jesus' resurrection and ascension for the apostles to replace Judas? Do you think this is an instant instance of apostolic succession or just the fact that the early church needed enough men to be appointed to help spread the good news? Now, Ken, I'm going to pass this again to you because my first thought was I wondered whether the lease of the upper room needed 12 signatures for it to be valid. <laughs> I'm sure that is true, yes. <laughs> well, yeah. What were they going to do? Because they had to have the upper room for the um, for the 120 to go and wait on the promise of the Father at, at Pentecost. That's exactly. Right. Um, why was it important, Denise asked, uh, in the early days after the resurrection uh, to replace Judas? 
Well, if you look at the narrative in Acts chapter 1, where the, uh, uh, where the story of the succession is going on, uh, what's interesting about this, and it's funny that I, I just never saw this uh, as a Protestant, but the whole narrative in Acts chapter 1, this is verses 12 through the end of the, of the chapter, this is the story about the replacement of Judas with Matthias, right? And one of the requirements, as they're trying to decide between the two men that are put up between them, one is Barsabbas and the other is Matthias, uh, they've put up two men who it says have been with us from the beginning. Now, it's interesting, isn't it, that there were people that were with Jesus from the baptism of John to his resurrection, and yet they were not apostles. It was just 12 that were chosen. Why 12? Well, the the obvious answer coming from the whole plan of salvation was that there were 12 tribes of Israel. And what the writer uh, Luke and and the the story, the belief, was that the church is like the new Israel. So it needs the 12 leaders to be able to constitute itself as the new Israel. So that's why they had to replace it. It shows very clearly that there was an office to to be filled. And so the idea of apostolic succession is, as it were, just below the surface of that story that's there for us in the book of Acts. Yeah, we, uh, we may get this when we look at one of the later emails today, but yeah, the, uh, the underlying of this is a, again, a, a, a understanding of the big picture of the gospel that often can be missed when you're a, a Bible-only Christian. Yeah. Because the yeah. big picture recognizes that nowhere in the Bible, nowhere in the Bible is the emphasis on individual salvation apart from the body of Christ. That from the beginning of Genesis all the way through to the end when people were drawn to intimacy with God, it was always as a part of a covenantal family. It was always Mm -hmm. that way. I mean, Abraham was not merely called himself to be saved. He was called to be a father of a group of people. And so this whole idea, and so in the sense, the 12 apostles was an affirmation, a reminder of this continuity of the people of God, all the way from Adam, all the way through the Old Testament, through our Lord, into the church, and that baptism, which is a replacement for circumcision, is right. what enables people to become a part of this family. And as you said, the 12 was like a neon sign flashing yeah. to remind them that this is a continuity of the people of God. Well, it, it, you're absolutely right. And th- what you're saying about being a Christian means being baptized not only into Christ, but into the church. This is what 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen clearly says, that by one spirit we've all been baptized into one body. So to be a baptized Christian, you are automatically made a part of that mystical body, and that mystical body gets expressed in outward structural ways in the book of Acts. So that wherever Paul and Barnabas or Silas, wherever they went preaching the gospel, what did they do? They formed the church. 
that was there. When these people had been baptized into the mystical body, it became a local body. You see that described in the book of Acts very, very clearly. So the idea that I could be a Christian without the church is really impossible, according to the New Testament. In fact, why don't we jump to this email uh, from Alexis, because it connects with this issue of baptism, Ken. When Alexis asks, why does St. Paul in 1 Peter 3, 20 through 21 say that baptism saves us? I've always been taught that baptism is an outward sign of an interior commitment to Jesus. Isn't that trying to do good works to earn our salvation? And Ken, again, this connects with what we were just talking about. Uh, There are many verses that seem to stress individualistic salvation. You know, John 3, 16, anyone who God's Mm -hmm. love the world, that whoever would believe would be would not perish but have everlasting life. It seems to imply individual acceptance of Jesus, but the unstated presumption throughout the New Testament and the writings of the church fathers, and you're the expert on that, uh, certainly between us, Ken, uh, is that salvation comes as being a faithful, believing individual as a member of the body of Christ, the church. This is the continuity of the Old Testament people of God, the New Testament church. I mean, it's the clear assumption throughout the New Testament and the writings of the early church fathers is that the normal means of entrance into the church is through baptism. When one receives the graces of the sacraments to be saved, this is the normal way. Um, salvation saves us like in the Old Testament, you know, that, that, that wonderful story about Naaman, the leper who was told to go bathe in the Jordan, and he didn't want to do it. Well, it wasn't magic, but it was his obedience, surrendering to the will of God. Well, that's what baptism's all about. Uh, Mm. And then through that obedience and surrendering to Christ, as other scriptures say, we receive new life in Christ as we're raised from the water, uh, as Christ was raised from the dead. Well, the, the New Testament builds upon the old, right? And so, for example, baptism becomes the sacrament which replaces circumcision in the Old Testament. But it's very clear in the Church Fathers, and Thomas Aquinas says this very beautifully. He says that the difference is this, that in the Old Testament, circumcision, uh, those things, had a only a symbolic function. That is, they indicated that you were a member of, like circumcision, the boys being circumcised, was an indication that they were members of the people of Israel. They were a member of the people of God. But in the new law, as Thomas calls it, in the new covenant, in the new sacraments, these not only are symbols or signs, but they're signs that convey what they signify. In other words, baptism conveys union with Christ. You are united with Christ. In, in fact, yeah. um, baptism indicates or signals um, forgiveness of sin. You're actually forgiven of sin. So that's the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The New Testament <clears throat> is that um, baptism actually conveys what it signifies. And that's why Peter can use such strong language. Baptism now saves you. Now, for example, it's interesting, my Lutheran friends will, because they believe in baptismal regeneration, uh, they will say, you see right there in First uh, Peter 3.20, uh, 1, it says, baptism now saves you. But a Baptist reading that <laughs> has a difficult time with that, right? Because they believe that baptism doesn't save you. And here's the difference. The difference is the Baptist has separated the cross of Christ from baptism. It's only a symbol that crossed. 
But the Lutheran and the Catholic have said, oh, no, no, baptism actually conveys what that cross took. And that's why Paul says that in baptism you're united to Christ in the cross. Yeah, where a circumcision uh, it was a symbol of, of membership in the body of God, the, the, the people of God, excuse me. Um, Paul says in 2 Corinthians essentially that in baptism we are a new creation. Anyone who's right. in Christ, in Christ is another way of saying being baptized and being uh, brought into the family. Anyone in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. It has really happened, whether we feel it or see it or not. That exactly. is a reality. Uh, and it's definitely a sign of grace, the work of grace when we think about that little baby who had nothing to do with it is baptized and is now a new creation. The old is oh, gone, yes. the new has come. Absolutely. All right, email from, from Sue. She writes, I always am inspired and encouraged by the witness of St. Paul and his incredible efforts, both through preaching and writing to share the gospel. However, I am a bit confused as to why he considers himself an apostle. He never even met Jesus when Jesus was alive and certainly wasn't one of Christ's chosen 12. So, Ken, why is Paul considered an apostle instead of just a disciple? Yeah, that's a good question. And um, I think Paul might have been sympathetic to her question in the sense that <laughs> he says, I'm not worthy to be called an apostle. I think it's in 1 Timothy. He says, you know, I'm, I'm the least of, I'm the worst of sinners. Um but remember two things. Remember what the word apostle means. The Greek word apostello and the derivative from that apost apostolos means the one who is sent. So we can even say today that we are apostles too. We're those who are sent out to do. And I have some very dear friends. And there's an order in the church that started in the 90s uh, that's come in America now. It used to be in Rome. Uh, it's called the Apostles of the interior life. Well, they don't claim to be apostles like Paul or Peter, but what they're saying is they too are sent to be uh, to, to preach the gospel. Now, the word apostle then is used um, to be uh, an official designation of those that are officially called to do that. And the way that Paul says it uh, in various places, he says, for example, he did in fact see the risen Jesus. He saw him in the vision in Acts chapter nine, on the way to the on the way to Damascus, when Christ strikes him down, as it were, he says he realizes, oh, uh, there's Jesus. I, he did in fact see him. Um, but Paul also recognized, by the way, that he needed to have the confirmation of the other apostles. So he goes to Jerusalem. This is related to us in the book of uh, Galatians, the letter to the Galatians, chapters 1 and 2. And he goes and he says, you know, he went up to the apostles and they gave him the right hand of fellowship. And they said, oh, yeah, you two are an apostle. You go to the Gentiles, we'll go to the Jews. <clears throat> and so Paul became the great apostle uh, to the Gentiles. So he was an apostle in the general sense of everyone is sent out by God. <clears throat> But he's also an official apostle uh, among adjoining uh, the 12, as he says in 1 Corinthians 15 that we read several weeks ago, as one who was born out of time. That is, he was an apostle, but he wasn't one of the original 12. He's the exception that proves the rule. You know, this issue is one of the reasons that I eventually 
left my own <clears throat> Presbyterian pastorate can to enter into the Catholic Church because one of the scriptures that I had always looked to as the foundation and the encouragement to my own sense of call to be a preacher was that wonderful verse in Romans 10, beginning with verse 14, where Paul says, but how are men to call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without a preacher? And so I would take that verse to mean that's why I'm here. You know, that's why I left engineering to go to seminary, to get trained, to get ordained, so that I'm I'm qualified to preach so that people would be saved. And uh, But I never looked at the next verse uh, where Paul goes on to say, and how can men preach unless they are sent? And yeah. there's that word that forms the foundation for the apostles, for his... I mean, the yeah. problem was, even in the time of Paul, that there were people popping up claiming authority that they didn't have, they're preaching false gospels, as he claims in Galatians chapter 1, different teachings, yeah. even in First Timothy, all these different problems. He's saying the way you'll know whether it's an authentic preacher is what is the authority behind them? Who sent them? Yeah. And if somebody starts preaching uh, the gospel, and, and, and that's why Paul was suspected first, right? Because he hadn't been sent out. But that's why he went to the apostles also to be approved, as it were. Is your message consistent with what is done? Yes, God does work in people uh, uh, apart from the, uh, the the normal channels, but eventually they have to be quote unquote sent. That is, they have to be approved in order by the church in order to do the work of the gospel. Let's uh, take the email from Jonah, Ken. Um, you see it down there? Why don't you go ahead and run with that one? Yeah, in 2 Timothy 4, 8, it says, Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Doesn't this state pretty clearly that Paul knows he was saved? I don't understand why Catholics say that it is something you hope for. Paul is saying that the crown of righteousness will be awarded to him, not that it might be. Yeah, that's a good that's a good question. But you see, what's interesting about it is that we have different kinds of language used in the New Testament. At times, there's language of great confidence. Uh, but at other times, uh, there's, there's questions in which <clears throat> there's kind of doubts that are placed in there. And I'm just thinking of... Uh, uh, there, what Paul is expressing in Second in Second Timothy four eight, is the absolute certainty that there is a crown of righteousness there, for those who believe in God, and he knows that he's run the race. He has hope, he has confidence that he will do that. Now, let me give you an example of this different use of of language. Um, Paul says, for example, in um, Philippians uh, chapter one. He speaks about the fact that I, I know that uh, this will all turn out for my salvation. He goes on to say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, this sounds like the language of real confidence, right? But then later on in the chapter, or rather later in this, this same letter, when he's speaking about the resurrection, when he's speaking about hope, 
he goes on to say in chapter twelve, uh, chapter three, and verse eleven, if I may just read these uh, words, um, that his goal is to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable to his death, if somehow he might attain to the resurrection. We see that language of if somehow they're attained to the resurrection produces a little bit of question. Is he going to attain to the resurrection? Well, my point is this, not to deny the the language of confidence and of hope in the New Testament, but then there's also times in which you step back and you say, well, you know, that's out there. That kind of righteousness is waiting for me. And for all who love is appearing, if I attain to it by the way that I live my life here. So Paul is not saying that he knows absolutely that he's going to be saved. He's giving an expression of hope. All right, really quickly, one more email. This comes from Teresa, and uh, she writes, There is a lot of buzz in the Christian media surrounding the future of Protestantism. Many are recognizing the disunity uh, that Sola Scriptura produces without a unified tradition. How does the choosing of Judas's successor, St. Matthias, point to the need for a united, lasting witness? Hmm. I'm puzzled by that, Marcus. What would you say? Well, uh, before we, the last question, let me address this, that, that there is a lot of talk on the Internet about the, the, the question whether Protestant remain. And I think that the reality is that when, ever since the Reformation, there have been a number of times throughout the history when a lot of people thought Protestantism was on its last legs at the end of the 19th century. There's lots of writings about that. But we see in the 20th century that the Holy Spirit inspired many men and women in those churches to return to a faithful walk in Christ. So I'm not sure about the issue of the future Protestantism, uh, but to me, the, that I think the choosing of Judas does emphasize the need for witnesses who were there from the beginning to mm. be the sole foundation to this trustworthy gospel. Oh yeah, you're absolutely right about that. In other words, it shows the continuity of the church throughout all the ages. And it's our responsibility as individual Christians to try to conform our lives to that, to Christ through the church as much as possible so that we can be in that stream of witness for 2,000 years. Yeah, and our separated brethren have the scriptures, which they, of course, have from the church. And uh, through their obedience to Christ, God will bless them. But still, we hope to help them discover the fullness of the faith. Thanks, Ken, for joining us today. Great to be here. Uh, Next week, we'll pick up on a few more emails. And uh, please go to the website, deepinscripture.com, to let us know about your thoughts on this program and maybe some questions you'd like us to answer in this program. God bless. We'll see you again next week.